continuing in our series on kings. You'll remember from last time that Jeroboam had set up an, an altar, two, two altars, that is, one in Dan, one in Bethel, to worship the Lord, and he was confronted by a prophet because of that, that was wrong. And yet we, we read in, in verse 33 of chapter 13 that after all these things, Jeroboam still did not turn from his evil way, and that's, the, that's what we need to know as we step into chapter 14. So 1 Kings 14, beginning in verse 1. At that time, Abijah, the son of Jeroboam, fell sick. And Jeroboam said to his wife, Arise and disguise yourself, that it not be known that you are the wife of Jeroboam, and go to Shiloh. Behold, Ahijah the prophet is there, who said of me that I should be king over this people. Take with you ten loaves, some cakes, and a jar of honey, and go to him. He will tell you what shall happen to the child. Jeroboam's wife did so. She arose and went to Shiloh and came to the house of Ahijah. Now Ahijah could not see, for his eyes were dim because of his age. And the Lord said to Ahijah, Behold, the wife of Jeroboam is coming to inquire of you concerning her son, for he is sick. Thus and thus shall you say to her. When she came, she pretended to be another woman. But when Ahijah heard the sound of her feet as she came in in the door, he said, Come in, wife of Jeroboam, why do you pretend to be another? For I am charged with unbearable news for you. Go, tell Jeroboam, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Because I exalted you from among the people and made you leader over my people Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you, and yet you have not been like my servant David, who kept all my commandments and followed me with all his heart, doing only that which was right in my eyes. But you have done evil above all who were before you and have gone and made for yourself other gods and metal images, provoking me to anger and have cast me behind your back." Therefore, behold, I will bring harm upon the house of Jeroboam, and will cut off from Jeroboam every male, both bond and free, in Israel, and will burn up the house of Jeroboam, as a man burns up dung, until it is all gone. Anyone belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat, and anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat, for the Lord has spoken it. Arise, therefore, go to your house. When your feet enter the city, the child shall die. And all Israel shall mourn for him and bury him. For he only of Jeroboam shall come to the grave, because in him there is found something pleasing to the Lord, the God of Israel, in the house of Jeroboam. Moreover, the Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel, who shall cut off the house of Jeroboam today. And henceforth, the Lord will strike Israel as a reed is shaken in the water and root up Israel out of this good land that he gave to their fathers and scatter them beyond the Euphrates because they have made their Asherim provoking the Lord to anger. And he will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he sinned and made Israel to sin. Then Jeroboam's wife arose and departed and came to Tirzah. And as she came to the threshold of, her, of the house, the child died. And all Israel buried him and mourned for him, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Ahijah the prophet. 
Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam, how he warred and how he reigned, behold, they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel. And the time that Jeroboam reigned was twenty-two years, and he slept with his fathers, and Nadab his son reigned in his place. So far from the word of God. As we reflect on what we've read, let's sing together from Psalm 81, stanzas 7, 8, and 11. The text that we'll be giving our attention to this morning is the same text that we have just read, 1 Kings 14, verses 1 through 20. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, I'm sure as we were reading this, you were probably thinking, this has to be the worst text ever to choose for a baptism. And it it might have been. Initially, I thought about it uh, as I was preparing this the sermon for this week, I thought about leaving this text till, till next week. But thinking about it some more, I, I decided that this is actually a very fitting text, and I hope you'll see why this, this turns out to be a very fitting text for a, a baptism. A few weeks ago, when we looked at, at Solomon's life, at the end of his life, I emphasized the point that the end of a thing is more important than its beginning. And that's true in the sense that what ultimately matters is not so much where you begin, but where you end up before the eyes of God. Even on earth, this is the case. A beautiful wedding ceremony is tainted with sadness if that marriage ultimately falls apart. Or a moving dedication ceremony at the beginning of, of, at the opening of a new church, it doesn't count for much if that church ultimately becomes unfaithful. The end of a thing is more important than its beginning. But that doesn't mean that beginnings don't matter. We shouldn't read those words. They come from Ecclesiastes 7, that the end of a thing is more important than the beginning, and conclude from that that beginnings don't matter at all, because in fact they do. Beginnings have a very determinative function. They so often determine the direction that an individual life or a career or a marriage or a church will go. That's why we take so much care right at the beginning of something to, to put the time and the effort into getting that beginning right. Seeds that are planted in the beginning and patterns that are established at the beginning more often than not ultimately determine where something will ultimately go and what something will ultimately be. Problems that are introduced right at the beginning very often become inescapable patterns later on. Beginnings have a way of determining the course that something will go. And unless there's some radical intervention, they very often show what the end will be like. They determine the destination. Well, this is exactly what we see in Jeroboam's story. Jeroboam is the first king of the northern kingdom. So he is the beginning of that kingdom in the north. It's up to him to determine what kind of kingdom that's going to be. And we've seen so far, especially with chapter 13 and the end of chapter 12, this is not a good beginning for Israel. And so in chapter 14, we come to the end of the beginning. Jeroboam's last chance to turn around, to avoid setting that pattern that's ultimately going to destroy Israel. And we should recognize as we head into this chapter that chapter 14 only exists because chapter 13 wasn't enough to turn Jeroboam around. We saw that at the end of chapter 13 last 
uh, last week that uh, verse 33 says, After all these things, Jeroboam still did not turn from his evil way, but he made new priests for the, the high place from again, among, again from among all the people. So Jeroboam, we saw last week, was publicly humiliated. He lost control of his arm, if you remember before that, that prophet. His altar was broken down and the ashes spilled out in front of everyone. And the word of God spoken by the prophet was so sure that it even had the prophet himself killed for it. So every warning you could possibly give to Jeroboam, he had been given and it still wasn't enough. So then you get chapter 14. Verse 1, at that time, Abijah, the son of Jeroboam, fell sick. God finally went after the firstborn. You're reminded of Egypt when God went after the firstborn in, in, in Egypt after every other plague had gone their way and it still wasn't enough to turn Pharaoh from his evil way. Then finally, God went after the life of his firstborn son. Extreme Hardness of heart requires extreme measures from God. And so now we see the same with Jeroboam. Abijah was also the heir to the throne. That's important. So Jeroboam was was not only concerned out of a fatherly love, at least you hope he was, but he was also concerned for his throne and for his legacy. And that's what God had promised him if he would be faithful. So God isn't acting at random here either by striking the heir. God struck his heir because he had promised an enduring house if Jeroboam would be faithful. And Jeroboam clearly demonstrated that he wasn't going to be faithful. Now we don't know the exact age of the child. The word that's used here usually indicates a very young child, a toddler, somewhere around that age. So when Jeroboam saw that his son had become seriously sick, he decided to send his wife to go see Ahijah the prophet. Well, sadly, this is the only time we ever read about Jeroboam making an initiative to go and see one of God's prophets. It reminds you really of so many people, even in our own day, people that don't know the Lord, people that don't go to church, and yet when disaster strikes, then suddenly they go back to that one priest or one pastor that they used to know a long time ago. This word from the word of of this prophet Ahijah clearly meant nothing to Jeroboam his entire life long. But now, like so many people, disaster has hit him. And so he goes back to this prophet, expecting some word from God, from the God that he's never cared to listen to before. So he sent his wife Ahijah to go to the prophet, but he had her go in disguise. You see that in verse 2. Now, the text doesn't say why Jeroboam did this, why he had her go in disguise. But you can imagine probably it was because he already knew what the prophet would say if the prophet recognized him. He had already been warned a long time ago by that same prophet that if he would be unfaithful, that God would cut off his house, that God would destroy his throne. So he knew perfectly well that he was walking in disobedience. His very goal was to try and get people away from the worship of the Lord in Jerusalem. And so now his goal as he goes to the prophet is to try and get from the prophet what he needs, the word from God that he wants from the prophet, without getting to the issues that God wants to speak to him about in his life. He knew that God didn't approve of his life, of his choices, but he wasn't there to talk about that. 
Well, he tells his wife to bring along ten loaves, some cakes, and a jar of honey. And this is all part of the disguise. This is a very humble gift. It's not what you would expect from a king. But it looks like a poor woman giving the prophet everything that she has. So he's manipulating the prophet into feeling sorry for this poor, poor woman. Well, the irony of it all is that Ahijah turns out to be blind anyways, so the disguise was really unnecessary. It was redundant, and in this way, Ahijah is even doubly blind. He can't see anyways, and she's coming in a disguise, and yet, of course, it didn't make any difference because this is the prophet of the Lord. The Lord told him exactly who it is, who it was that was coming. So verse 5, Jeroboam Uh, The Lord said to Ahijah, Behold, the wife of Jeroboam is coming to inquire of you concerning her son, for he is sick. Thus and thus you shall say to her. And when she came, she pretended to be another woman. But when Ahijah heard the sound of her feet, as she came in the door, he said, Come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why do you pretend to be another? For I am charged with unbearable news for you. Well, Jeroboam and his wife, they might have been able to fool the man but they couldn't fool the Lord. You can't pull the wool over God's eyes. He sees right through us, even in spite of our disguises. There's no disguise, no pretense that can persuade God that we're somebody that we already know we're not. Even if we can persuade ourselves, we still can't persuade the Lord. Well, there's a second irony here, too. Jeroboam thought that he was sending his wife to the prophet, but as it turns out, the prophet tells her, I have been sent to you and with unbearable news. The child's sickness and Jeroboam's plan and his wife's journey, they were really all planned by God. In reality, Ahijah was being sent to Jeroboam. And so Ahijah told Jeroboam's wife that he had been sent with unbearable news. And you read that news in verses 7 through, through 11, the first part of that news anyway. And that's the Lord's rebuke to, to Jeroboam. And you can notice some structure in these verses. It, it says, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I did this for you and I did that for you. There's I, I, I did all these things for you. And then you, you, you have done all these things back to me. You have done evil above above all who were before you. You have not been like my servant David. You have gone and made other gods. You have cast me behind your back. And then it goes back to I. He says, therefore I, 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 I will bring harm upon the house of Jeroboam. I will cut off from Jeroboam every male, and I will burn up the house of Jeroboam. So what you see in that pattern is that Jeroboam is not just sinning against God. He's sinning against God's grace, the grace that God had shown him in putting him where he was. He had been shown every grace, every blessing from the Lord God. And you notice God uses some very harsh language with with Jeroboam. You could even say this is vulgar language. The ESV really does a job to clean it up. But when God, even when God says, I will cut off every male from the house of Jeroboam, literally in the, in the Hebrew it says, I will cut off all those that urinate against walls. 
In the King James, actually, it's even more colorful, but I'll let you look that up on your own. But that's an expression that refers not only to, to the males in the house of Jeroboam, but to the males that grew up in the palace, in privilege, those that urinated against walls, unlike all those poor Hebrew boys that only had bushes. It's very vulgar, but very, very strong language against Jeroboam, that he's sinning against every grace that God has shown him. And then God added through the prophet, I will burn up the house of Jeroboam like one burns up dung. Between the urine and the dung, the message is pretty clear. Jeroboam's house stinks before God. And the prophet is telling him it's time to move his house to the septic tank where it belongs. And so Ahijah continues, anyone belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. Anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heaven shall eat. For the Lord has spoken it. And we have to understand in those times, a burial was, was very important to people. They would often even engage in, in dangerous military campaigns just to rescue bodies so that they could receive a proper burial. To not be buried was the sign of the greatest dishonor. So this is the most dishonorable end imaginable for Jeroboam's line. And we'll see this more often in the book of Kings. It's a gruesome book at times. And that's perhaps one of the reasons why we don't like to read it as often as we do. It shows the ugliness of sin and its disastrous, broken consequences for individuals, for the church, and even for the entire nation. And so the prophet tells Jeroboam's wife in verse 12, this is the last part of the warning or or, or of the judgment, he says, Arise, therefore, go to your house. When your feet enter the city, the child shall die, and all Israel shall mourn for him and bury him. For he only of Jeroboam shall come to the grave, because there is found in him something pleasing to the Lord, the God of Israel, in the house of Jeroboam. Now, there's, there's some comforting words there about the child uh, himself. But the message overall, overall is still a message of very serious judgment. The child's death was a sign and a seal of greater judgments to come. It's the end of the beginning, the first king, Jeroboam. And it's the beginning of the end of Israel. Maybe Jeroboam and his wife had thought that the child had gotten a rough deal from God, but in reality, the child is the only one who, who was spared. That boy would be spared from growing up and becoming another man like his father, another evil, wicked man, which, as far as human eyes can tell, is what would have happened had he been able to grow up in that home. So the only one to escape the judgment of God turned out to be this little child who was taken away before he could become the next version of his father. Now there's there's some theological questions that are left behind there for us. Every indication is that God saved this child even though he was the son of an unbeliever. Now I recognize, of course, Jeroboam was still a member of the covenant, But he was an unfaithful member, a man who had broken the covenant and walked away from God. And yet we see God has mercy on this child. Now we'd love to believe that this is the way that God always works. That God always saves infants that die in their infancy. But the truth is, 
We don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us. With questions like these, we have to be very careful not to make judgments on behalf of God. We're all, the truth is that we are all conceived and born in sin. God would be right if He chose to do so to cast every one of us into hell. He doesn't owe us salvation. There's no human being, even an infant, that's truly innocent in God's eyes. But, but that said, here in God's covenant, we do have the sure promises of God's grace that's not only for us, but also for our children. And we're going to see that also later in the baptism. But outside the covenant, there are no, no easy answers at all. God would have every right to condemn every human being. He is God. We are all, even the smallest of us, sinners. And the only way to God that Scripture ever reveals is through Jesus Christ. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. So Scripture doesn't say how God will judge infants of unbelievers who die in their infancies, who never had a chance to know Him. And so we shouldn't make a judgment on God's behalf either. Many Christians believe that all infants will be saved because they're innocent. They're before the age of responsibility. Scripture doesn't teach that. It leaves that question in the hands of God. Our comfort is that, as, at least as far as that goes, is, is that whatever God does, He does right. He will do the right thing. And that can be our assurance and comfort. Well, something else I should say before we move on from those verses. This text is not teaching us that the death of a child is always punishment for sin. You can think of the widow of Zarephath who lost her child, and it clearly wasn't a punishment. Or in the New Testament, the disciples asked the Lord about a a man born blind, whether it was his sins or his parents' sins that caused him to be born that way. And the Lord says, no, it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We can't pretend to know God's purposes when he does take a child away. More often than not, we won't have an answer until eternity. But this, de- this text does teach us that God has a purpose for every child's death. God, had, God sometimes takes a child like he did with this one because he has better plans for that child. And plans that we can't even begin to imagine. You think of Psalm 116 verse 15 that tells us, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of of his saints. And that's certainly true for the death of the children of his saints as well. So for this child, in the middle of all that judgment, there's a word of grace, undeserved, unexpected grace for that child. For Jeroboam and for Israel, sadly, this child's death is only the beginning of far worse things to come. It's the end of the beginning and the beginning of the end for Israel, even though it's 200 years in advance. That pattern of idolatry that Jeroboam set up at the beginning of the kingdom would become the pattern that every king after him followed, and afterwards it would lead to the end of the kingdom of Israel. 
And so the prophet says in verse 14, Moreover, the Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel who shall cut off the house of Jeroboam today. And henceforth, the Lord will strike Israel as a reed is struck or shaken in the water and root up Israel out of this good land that he gave to their fathers and scatter them beyond the Euphrates because they have made their ashram provoking the Lord to anger. If you're going to uproot, to to explain this this image, if you're going to uproot a reed that's growing in the water, you would first strike it very hard so that the the roots would would be loosened from the mud, and then you would pull that reed out and, and take it somewhere else. And that's the warning that God is giving Jeroboam here. He will strike Israel, and that will be only the beginning. He will strike them in order to uproot them. He will destabilize the throne of Jeroboam as the beginning of the judgment so that he can then send invaders into the country to take them away. Well, this is the response that God's, that, that God's prophet gave to Jeroboam's wife to bring back to him. So, as he told, so, so he told her as soon as her feet entered the city, that child would die and that death would be the beginning of the end, the, the beginning of the undoing. Of Israel, And so we read in verse 17 that Jeroboam's wife arose and departed and came to Tirzah. And as soon as she came to the threshold of, of the house, the child died. Now there's something just unfathomable about the response that you get from Jeroboam's wife. You can only imagine the, the agony that must have been on her heart as she journeyed home, knowing that her presence would bring about the death of her child. And it leaves you wondering, why did she do it? Why did she even go home? You want to cry out to her, don't you realize every time God speaks in judgment, contained in there, whether he says so explicitly or not, there's an opportunity for repentance, how did David respond when, when God declared certain death for his child with, after his sin with Bathsheba? Even though God didn't promise him any opportunity for repentance, what did David do? He tore his clothes. He fasted. He put sackcloth and ashes on his head. He wept before God all night long for seven days. And I know that didn't ultimately save that child. But David understood it's never too late to cry out to God in repentance. You never know what grace God might show. You think of 2 Kings 20 when God came to King Hezekiah with a word of judgment that he would die and Hezekiah wept bitterly before the Lord. And what did the Lord do? He added 15 years to Hezekiah's life. In fact, even the the ungodly, murderous King Ahab that we're going to read about several weeks from now, even he at one point was confronted by God and came to God in repentance and even he was shown mercy. It's never too late for repentance. And so when you read Ahijah's judgment that he gives here to the wife of Jeroboam, you can't help but think maybe, just maybe, God is giving Jeroboam and his wife a way out of that judgment. He told her, as soon as your feet enter the city, then the child shall die. And you can't help but think, why, why did God set up the judgment that way if it wasn't to leave a way for her to preserve the life of that child, for her to find a way out? What should she have done? Well, Scripture doesn't say what God might have done with that child. 
But she ought to have said, well, then I will never enter that city again. And I will come to God and live before God in repentance so that he wouldn't take the life of that child. We don't know would God have saved that child or not. But certainly it would have been the right thing and the loving thing for a mother to do for her child. Now you might say, well, what a radical course of action that would be. And you're right, it would be a huge price for her to have to pay. She might have to give up ever seeing her son again. But isn't the life of her son worth a radical repentance like that? And that's the message also for us as we reflect on this. Is your life worth a radical repentance like that? Or the life of your family? Or do we say, like Jeroboam's wife, the way out that God is giving me is too great for me to take? Repentance or confession is too radical a step for me. I'm not willing to confess my sins or my addictions or my crimes because that would be too radical for me. The consequences would be too great for me. I couldn't possibly go down that road of repentance that God is leaving before me because that would turn my life on its head. But then, brothers and sisters, isn't that exactly the point? And isn't that, in the big scheme of things, worth it? How many people are in hell right now wishing that they had taken the radical step of repentance while they still had the opportunity? Okay, maybe, maybe there aren't many since one of the characteristics of people in hell is that they don't repent. But you get the point. When God calls us to repentance, it's unconditional surrender that he calls us to. There's no price That's too great for that. Nothing's too radical when a righteous and holy God is calling his people to repentance. So what a tragedy tragedy it is that Jeroboam's wife doesn't go down that road. She doesn't even seem to give repentance a thought. She never asks God for mercy. She never tries his grace. And so as soon as her feet touched the threshold of her house, the child died. And maybe you notice with me, God even gave her that that extra grace to the very last second, not taking the child's life when she entered the city, but even waiting till her feet crossed the threshold of her house. Brothers and sisters, sadly, this is a story about walking away from repentance. Jeroboam had been given so many opportunities to repent, and he never took God up on them. God is slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love, and and he's he's merciful. He's long-suffering. And yet the nature of sin, apart from God's grace, is that no warnings, no confrontations, no words of judgment are ever enough to turn a person from their sin. And sadly, the consequences can be so devastating, not only for oneself, but in so many cases for others in one's life. And not only for this life, but also for the life to come. Well, because Jesus Christ paid the price for your sins to set guilty sinners free, because he bore the wrath of God against the whole human race, it's never too late to repent As long as you are still alive on earth, it's not too late to repent. Psalm 95 says, Today, if you hear my voice, do not harden your hearts as they did. So, brothers and sisters, perhaps your sins also are like scarlet, the way that Jeroboam's sins were. 
Well, if it's still today, there is hope for them to be washed whiter than snow. Perhaps God has spoken a word of judgment against you. Perhaps you've come to see that God seems to be preparing your life for judgment in every respect. And yet, until until the final day of judgment, even if God speaks to you now in judgment, there is an opportunity in that for you to turn and repent and find his mercy in Jesus Christ. We might think of, of uh, the king Manasseh that, that comes up later in Second Kings, who right till the end of his life was a murderer and an idolater, the worst king that Israel had yet had to date. And at the end of his life, he found God's mercy. He cr- and, he was, and he was saved as far as we know. So because Jesus Christ bore the wrath of God against the, hum- the sins of the human race, because he hung broken, suffocating, and truly beyond the hope of God's mercy, because he went there, none of us are ever beyond the hope of God's mercy as long as we are still on this earth. Because, God, because the Lord Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We can rest assured that God never completely forsakes us in this life until the very end of our life there's always hope and time to repent so is it still today as psalm 95 says then repentance no matter how radical no matter how costly is never too costly Maybe it will mean like it might have meant for Jeroboam's wife that you might never be able to return home. Maybe it will mean as it would have for Jeroboam that he would have to humble himself before his brothers in Judah and confess his sins and idolatry and and the fact that he was wrong in leading the people away from Judah. Is that too great a cost for eternal life? In reality, the truth is it's far too small a price to pay. If you do repent, then you will know that the the real cost, the truly costly price, was not paid by you. The truly unbearable cost was paid by Jesus Christ. But sadly, this, in 1 Kings 14, is a story about walking away from repentance. God's mercies extend even to the very last second, but after that, God's judgment is inevitable. He means his judgments. He means his threats. And so the urgent lesson for us today is humble our, for, for us to humble ourselves before this God. Repent if there is repenting that needs to happen, and do so while it's still not too late. Surrender to God unconditionally, as Jeroboam's wife ought to have done, to save her own life and the life of her child, so that God might have mercy on us. And if we do repent, then we will join the the company of hundreds of others in this church of broken Sinners who know their sin, who know their guilt, and who've repented before God, and millions of broken sinners on earth. Don't be ashamed to join their company, for they are all guilty just as you are. There's only one righteous man alive, and that's Jesus Christ in heaven, and he is the hope for all of us sinners. Well, I mentioned that despite the sad note on which this chapter ends, that this is nevertheless actually a good text to consider as we prepare ourselves just to witness a baptism. And here's why. First, it's a sober reminder for all of us that, that, that all of us, even our 
infants are conceived and born in sin. If that wasn't true, there would be no reason to baptize this child. Secondly, this is a good text because it points us to the only hope that we have, which is the gospel, which is what baptism is all about. It shows us we're sinners, filthy, we need cleansing, but it also shows us God's mercy, that God is able to make us clean. By God's grace, Rob and and Fallon haven't walked away from repentance like Jeroboam's wife did, but by their profession of faith in this church and by coming here also this morning to have their child baptized, they're testifying again that their only hope is in that gospel of Jesus Christ, that their entire salvation is in him, and that the same is true for their little baby. So we don't baptize him because he's cute and innocent. We baptize him because he belongs to Christ, which is also where his parents' life is and where all of our lives are, as long as we cling to him. So this baptism, this is another beginning that sets a course for the future. But it's a beginning that's surrounded by grace. The grace of God in sending Christ to die for our sins, including the sins of this little child. The grace of God in working through his parents' hearts to bring them to himself and to bring this child through them to himself. And the grace of God in providing such parents to this little boy, Connor, so that he would also come to know and love this same God. This is a gospel of grace, and that's where our hope is. Amen. Let's respond.